Well, hey, everybody. If we haven't met, my name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, our other pastor, Jason, he's on vacation um, right now. They're having a good time. Um, but we are jumping back into Romans. Who's enjoyed Romans that we've been going through? Anybody? Awesome. Awesome. I've been loving going through Romans, like I said the last time I preached. Um, the last time we were in Romans was six weeks ago. We took a pause for um, Jason was doing a series on the church, and now we're jumping right back into Romans. We're jumping into uh, chapter 10. And um, if you haven't been tracking with us, you can always go back, and we've got a podcast with most of the past sermons and whatnot, um, anywhere where you'd find podcasts. I think it's just called the Coastal Church Podcast. You can look it up and find it. Um, but if you are new, we are working through the book. It's a book of the Bible called Romans. It's in the New Testament, and it's a letter written to the church in Rome by a guy named Paul. And the church in Rome had, had a little bit of conflict going on because there's a bunch of, of Jews who historically were kind of like the people of God. And, uh, and then there's this group of Greeks, which is kind of, and they'd be referred to as Gentiles. But that's basically everybody else. That'd be like you and me, everybody else. And because there's these two different groups, there's a lot of conflict. And there's some disagreement on some different theological ideas and whatnot. And so Paul is writing to this church to kind of help bring some correction, bring some guidance, help them to see things maybe through a better lens. And so we get to now read this letter, which is not written to us, but it is written for us. So we have to look at the kind of the context, what's going on, and there's some really good stuff in here. But as I was thinking about preparing for today, I was kind of just processing through like the cultural moment that we are in right now. We are surrounded constantly by ideas and voices speaking into our lives. You cannot go very far without somebody giving you their opinion on how you should think or how you should act. Our friends do it. Our parents do it. The news does it. Social media does it. We're constantly being bombarded with voices and giving each other advice and whatnot. And here's the thing as I was thinking about preparing is like, now you're here listening to me for more ideas and it's like, I'm probably the worst person to be giving advice. I'm not married. I've got no kids. I haven't ever run a business. I'm not the guy you should come to for advice for most things. But I was thinking about it, it's like, realistically, when we really think about it, we are all just making our best guesses at how to go about living our life. And at the end of our lives, I imagine we'll look back and we'll think, okay, some of those decisions were good, some of them were bad. But really, what I think that you and I benefit from is the fact that we're able to go to God's word and get a 30,000-foot view and get some ideas from somebody that sees everything with an eternal perspective, a God who created it all. He actually wants to give us some of his ideas, some of his thoughts, be the voice that speaks into our life. Because I don't have anything to offer you, but my prayer is that as we work through some of this text, that God might speak some truth. Because more than ever, I think, in the moment in culture that we're at, even the moment our church is at, we need God's truth more than anything. When we're being pulled a hundred different directions, we need something that grounds us, that gives us a foundation, something that we can stand on and be sure of, because we're not going to find it ultimately anywhere else. So that's kind of the context I was thinking about as we were diving in here, because the Jews that Paul is writing to have some of the same kind of problems. They've bought into some ideas that maybe aren't helpful or maybe aren't true, and that causes them to live and act in a way that's different than maybe God would have them live, and it gets them into some problems. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 10. Last time I preached, we did get through all of chapter 9, which I thought was pretty impressive. Today, we're not getting through all of 10. You can uh, go and finish reading it out. It's an awesome chapter. We're just going to look at a few verses today. 
We're starting off Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, them being the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. I'd like to pause here for a second because I think this idea is fascinating. He says that they had a zeal for God. Zeal basically means passion. We understand passion better than we understand zeal. So they had a passion for God, but not according to knowledge. And how many of you know that we can be passionate about something, but just because we're passionate about it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing to be passionate about. And uh, last week, we actually, Jason was talking about the passion that the church is meant to have to see the people outside the church, to have compassion, to care for those in need. All these things are very, very good. Passion is the thing that motivates us in the church. But our passion has to be informed by something. Uh, we had a lot of fun renovating this building, and we're still very much not done. There's, there's another few phases that need to happen eventually. Uh, but one thing I am very, very passionate about is what color walls should be. And I, uh, I feel very strongly about what, what color certain walls should be. But just because I feel really strongly about it doesn't mean that I'm right. And so fortunately, there's a few other people that came alongside to help give guidance on what color the wall should be. And they were able to weigh in, and we came with, up with a better solution than what I would have come up on my own. And it does not matter how strongly I felt about a wall being green. This building should not have any green walls. <laughs> doesn't matter how much I want a green wall. We shouldn't have it. Yes, I know the ceiling's still pink, but we're working on it. <laughs> we didn't paint it, that's what it's been. But this is just to say that just because we feel strongly about something doesn't mean that that thing is right. We need something external speaking in to our passion, speaking into the things that we feel strongly about. Because we, in and of ourselves, are a very bad filter for our own strong feelings. And I, I struggle with this with wall color, pretty minor. But the Jews struggled with this in a pretty significant way. Because Israel, the Jews, were passionate about the things that they thought in their minds were the things of God. They are very passionate about their, their history. They are very passionate about the rules and regulations that they were to follow as a people. They are very passionate about the way that you should live your life. They are very passionate about their text. They are very passionate about their traditions which in their mind, these were all the things of God, so they are things worth being passionate about. But sometimes they got them off track. And Paul, the guy who wrote the book of Romans, I think is a very good example of how this can go wrong. You see, Paul had a miraculous encounter with Jesus that completely changed his life. But before that, Paul was a devout Jew. Um, he, was, he would have been a, in a bit of a leadership role, and he used his influence and he actually specifically, in another letter, he says that he had this zeal for God, but it motivated him to actually kill Christians and to imprison Christians and to persecute the church. So he had a zeal, a passion for God, but it was informed by some faulty thinking. His, his picture of God, his picture of what God would have him do was wrong, and that caused him to do some terrible, terrible things to the church. So just because we feel passionate doesn't mean what we do with that is always the right thing. It needs to be informed by something else. And Paul is a great uh, example of this. 
So Paul says that, uh, for I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And what is the knowledge that Paul is referring to? He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So what's going on here? What is righteousness? Righteousness easily explained is it is right relationship with God. It is right standing with God. If I am righteous before God, that means I stand before God and there is no barrier. It means I stand before God and me and him are on good terms. My, if I am righteous, I, I am on good terms with God. So Paul is saying they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And he's not referring to the righteousness that God has because they would have understood that. They would have understood God as holy and perfect and right. He's actually, what he's really referring to here is the righteousness that not God is, but that God gives. Paul is saying that the Jews were ignorant of the righteousness that God extends to us. And because they did not understand the way that God extends righteousness, they seeked to establish their own righteousness. And because they tried to do it on their own, they did not submit then or take hold of or benefit from the righteousness that God wanted to extend. Jews were, the Jews were trying to make themselves right before God on their own terms, not on God's terms, and it got them into some trouble. Because here's the problem. What you believe to be true about something influences in many ways how you're going to act. What we believe is incredibly important. This is why theology, this is why what we believe about God is so important. Because if you believe that God doesn't exist, you're going to live your life however you want. And it's actually logically coherent to live your life that way. If there is no God, that means there's, there's, no, more, there's no real depth of meaning or purpose to anything. So therefore, live your life however you'd like. Or say, if you believe there is a God, but that God is, is distant and far off and removed, that just created everything and then walked away, realistically, it doesn't really matter how you live. But it also means that if you run into problems or trouble, why would you turn to a God that's far away if he doesn't care about what's going on here? What you believe about God influences how you act. If you believe that God is real and close, but that he's angry and wrathful, You'll live your life constantly wondering, like, is God going to, to smite me? Have I done too much bad? Have I done enough good? And we're going to be constantly wondering if God's angry. And that's going to influence how we then engage with that God. If we picture God as angry, he's probably not the one we turn to when we need compassion. The flip side of this is that if we believe that God is actually a loving, gracious, caring father... That's going to influence how we act around God. That's going to influence how we come to God. Because it means that if I'm, if I'm going through something, I know where to turn. It means that if I need to be comforted, I know there's a God who stands there, who understands me deeply with open arms to embrace. What we believe about God influences the way that we will engage with God. Our belief matters. What we believe to be true matters. There's a famous quote that says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it influences our actions at a deeper level than anything else. And uh, how we believe God wants to interact with us will change how we interact with him. So uh, we're going to continue, keep going in verse 4. And I think verse 4 helps us see even more so how God wants to engage 
with us. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I want to unpack this a bit because this one sentence, there's so much good in here. It starts off, For Christ. Who is Christ? You're probably familiar with Christ Jesus. Christ is actually a title. It means anointed one. And this idea of an anointed one, a Messiah who is going to come and kind of liberate the Jewish nation was an idea that, their gener- that generations past had held on to. All throughout the Old Testament, there's these little glimpses of foreshadowing pointing to this anointed one who is going to, to set Israel free. The, the Jewish nation free. So this idea of a Christ is very familiar to them. It's not a foreign concept to the people that Paul is writing to. But this Christ, this anointed one, this savior, is the end of the law. And law language requires a little bit of Old Testament understanding. This is, this is one of the interesting things about, about a book or a letter that's being written to a nation that existed thousands of years ago is there's a bit of context that we need to understand to fully know what's going on here. So, it's the end of the law. What was the law? Well, when God set apart this people, this Israelite nation, he gave them a set of guidelines to follow that if they followed these rules, they would remain sinless before God. Because God is holy, which means set apart and perfect, and because God is holy, holy and sin don't mesh. So, very quickly, the Israelites realized the, all of these laws, we're not able to follow them. We can't, we can't do it. Like I, like, I mess up every day. Like, we're in a mess because once we sin, we've broken that off, and now we can't access God. So God created a system where, um, because the penalty for sin ultimately is death, sin is any time we miss the mark, and because of that, there needed to be a penalty paid for sin. So the law prescribed that if you sinned, you could go get an animal kill that animal, and that animal would basically be the sacrifice in your place in order for you to be basically cleansed and then be righteous before God again. Um, And so when he's saying that this is the end of the law, it's basically saying that Jesus, who is sinless, came to earth, died on the cross, and became that sacrifice that makes us right before God. So Jesus' death on the cross was to fulfill the law. The sacrifice that the law demanded, because we are sinful, Jesus died on the cross to pay that price, to be that sacrifice. And in doing so was the end of the law. The law still exists in the sense that it shows us that we, in and of ourselves, cannot measure up to God's standards. The law shows us that no matter how hard we try, we cannot do enough to be made righteous before God in our own effort. Jesus came and died so that we could be made righteous. It's how it continues. He says, um, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Jesus came and died to be the sacrifice for us, to complete and fulfill the law so that you and I, so that the Jewish nation, so that the other people in this church that Paul is writing to, so that they can be made right before God without having to constantly worry about, did I sacrifice a goat today? Are you thankful that you don't have to sacrifice a goat to be made right before God? I'm quite thankful. I don't know if that would go over too well societally at this point. Um, But we don't have to worry about that anymore because Jesus was the sacrifice. And he did it so that we could be righteous before God. 
so that we could stand before God without barrier, without shame, without wondering if we've done enough good or too much bad, that we don't have to worry about that, that we can be made righteous not based on what we've done, but based on what he did. And who did he do this for? It says that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So who did he do it for? Everyone who believes. And a little bit later in the verse, we'll see what, really what he means by belief. He expands on it a little bit. But this is why it's important about what we believe. What we believe is so important because it influences the way that we're going to act. If we believe that we have to do a certain list of things in order to be made right before God, that will cause us to live and think a certain way. But if we believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin, that we can find righteousness in him rather than in what we can do, that's going to change the way that we live and act. And I think we can get this wrong on two different ways. Because um, it says to everyone who believes. Here's the issue. For, for the Jews, they struggled with this because they were committed to a righteousness that they could attain. They insisted on a righteousness that they had to work for. And this was a huge issue because they had done this a certain way for generations. You and I don't struggle with this idea of believing and save nearly as much as they did. It's a radical idea. But the problem with this is, is if we start believing because we might not struggle with it in the same way that they did, but I'd be willing to bet that there's some of us here, probably a lot of us here, where we feel a certain sense of, I need to do certain things in order to be made right before God. That I need to, I need to live my life a certain way, or else God is going to look down on me with, with anger or whatever it is. And ultimately, this, this, this idea is actually self-righteousness. I'm sure we've heard that phrase thrown around before, this idea of being self-righteous. But really, self-righteousness is just the idea that I can make myself righteous based off of my actions. And this causes us to err in two different ways. One, we will feel as though we've achieved it. And if you've ever met somebody that feels like they've achieved righteousness on their own effort, it's probably not a fun person to be around. Because they, 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 they will then look at everybody else who hasn't achieved that as well. Like, why haven't you done that? And there's a, a looking down on those who aren't as far along as we are. And there's a danger when we think that because of our actions, we're ahead of somebody else. Because ultimately, at the root of that thinking is this belief that something that I do or don't do determines whether or not I'm righteous before God. And I think this is sometimes why the church can be viewed as judgmental is because we view ourselves as being better than others because of the way that we live or don't live. But that's not the case. We are all in need of grace and God's forgiveness and God's righteousness because none of us, no matter how hard, hard we try, we can't get there on our own. So self-righteousness can, can be pretty negative if we think we've attained it, but it also can be pretty negative if we think we need it but don't feel like we can measure up. Because maybe you don't feel like you've, you've made it. Maybe you don't feel like you're perfect. I don't think any of us would say that we feel that way. But maybe you feel as though you haven't done enough. Maybe you feel as though you don't measure up to God's standard. Maybe you have this picture of who you think you need to be in order to please God, and you struggle against it day after day. And that's also a form of self-righteousness. It's a form of believing that I need to do certain things in order to be made right 
before God. Here's the thing. I often hear people say, I need to get my life fixed up before I come to church. And I think that's sometimes because the church kind of paints this pretend picture of what your life's like, a Christian life should look like. And there are certain things we're meant to do or not do, but the church was never meant to be a club for people who have it all figured out. The church is meant to be a hospital for sick people. Jesus said that I have not come for the well, but for the sick. I have not come for those who think they've got it all together. I've come for those who realize that they've got some some work that needs doing. See, God is not looking for those of us who have it all figured out. He's looking for those of us who can say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. God wants to extend us his righteousness, not based on what we do. But there's a flip side to this as well. Because I think in the culture we live in, there's kind of like church culture, which tends to go more legalistic, tends to go a little bit more self-righteous, works-based. But our culture has kind of walked the other way to say that, that, that for Christ is the end of the law for, for righteousness to everyone. And we'll just scrap the belief piece. And we'll believe that you can be right before God no matter how you live, no matter what you do, no matter what you believe, that you can believe in, in Hindu or, or, or Islam, or whatever religion you want, and you're, you're fine because it's really all the same thing, and it's all good to go. And that's not the case either. You see, we can err on either side of this, and both get us into trouble, because what we believe about how we are made right before God influences everything. Um, and so this belief piece, what does this belief piece mean? In verse 9, it kind of sums this up. He says that because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew or the Greek. He's saying that the, the heritage, the, the generations of tradition of the Jews don't actually give them a leg up. Because it's not about what you do. He says it's, 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 there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. There's no distinction between you and me. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And this 13, this is where we'll, we'll kind of end off for today, is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is this idea that we confess And confession is not so much about just admitting all the things we've done wrong. It's confessing. It's speaking that I believe, God, I believe what you're saying to be true. When we confess with our mouth, like it says, we are saying, God, this this gospel, this this idea that I can be made righteous by, by believing in you, this idea that you died on the cross for my sin, this idea that I want you to be Lord, we speak it, we confess it. That's what's going on. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Belief in our heart, it's deep. It's a conviction. It's not simply an acknowledgement. It's deeper than that. When we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, then we are saved. We like to add on, if you confess with your mouth um, and believe in your heart and come to church every Sunday and do X, Y, and Z and don't do these other things, then you'll be made right. But that's not the case. He ends. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, next week we will get into that. If we say God is Lord, 
Lord communicates authority. So if we're saying, Jesus, you are Lord, that means I, I am choosing to come under your authority. So there is still a sense of where God might call us to live differently. But that is second to God calling us righteous. Our right, we, we become righteous. We get right standing with God. We, we can stand face to face to God without issue by believing, by confessing. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. As I was preparing for this sermon, I really felt like God was saying that there are things that we as a church have believed that actually cause us to act in a way that's maybe a bit disaligned with the way that God would have us live. What we believe about God is so, so important. It influences everything. And I think sometimes we can be really, really passionate about some stuff. But just because we're passionate about it, just because we feel strongly, doesn't inherently mean that it's right. And I don't think that it's my place today to tell you what is necessarily right or wrong. But I do think that God wants to speak into our lives tonight. And maybe for some of us, this is God confirming something deep within us that we know to be true. And maybe for some of us, this is God actually maybe pointing out something that maybe we need to rethink. Maybe it's God actually bringing a little bit of correction to say, hey, you might have believed this for a long time, but maybe that's not fully accurate. An incorrect belief will lead to incorrect action, or unhealthy belief will lead to unhealthy action. And that's going to lead us down paths where either we hurt other people or we hurt ourselves. Or we push ourselves away from God or we push other people away from God. And so we're actually going to pray tonight that God would speak to us. The section of Romans 10 that we skipped over, just because it, it, it's, it's a little complicated in the way that it's written. But basically what he's saying is that, do you go down to the abyss to look for God, to get near to him? Or do you go up to heavens to look near for God? He says, no, that's not how it works. God is already near. God is in this place. And God wants to speak truth to you and I in a cultural moment where we need truth more than ever. So if you'd pray with me. God, tonight with open hearts, we ask you to come and move in this place. Holy Spirit, come. We want to create space for you to move and speak. If you're, if you're in the crowd and you, you want to agree this with me, feel free. God, right now, I just say I am open to whatever it is that you want to speak. I set aside my, my preconceived ideas. I set aside my tradition. I set aside the ways that I've done life for years. And I say, God, would you, would you speak truth into my bones, into my heart, into my mind in a deep way? God, for this room, I, I ask that you would, you would help confirm in them their, their right standing before you. That those of us who feel like maybe we haven't met the mark, that maybe we haven't measured up, God, that you would, you would confirm deep within us that that's actually not what you care most about. You care about us coming towards you and saying, God, I can't do it on my own. I need you to impart your righteousness to me. So God, we, we confess that you are Lord and we believe in our heart that you have resurrection power, that you can raise the dead, 
that you can take broken things and make them whole, that you can take dead things and make them alive because God, more than ever, we need a healing work in this place. I need a healing work in me. So Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you do what only you can do? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to sit or stand, whatever you prefer.